This is a Federal News Network podcast. The continuing resolution, having now eaten up nearly five months of the fiscal year, is starting to affect the market valuations of publicly traded federal contractors. That may not seem like a concern of the government, but think again. We get more now from the president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, David Berteau. And David, what's going on here? You're finding that some companies are having talent issues and and, uh, capital issues because of uncertainty over this whole market? Tom, there's two things going on here. And one, I think, who would have thought that we would miss the old sequester budget caps from that were in place from 2012 through 2021. Remember, we were so eager for those to be over with, and then we could go back to regular order. Well, it turns out that having caps also meant you had a floor and you had a starting point for an agreement that you could get full appropriations. We don't have that anymore. And I think this CR is proving to be a little harder. I know the government says we know how to operate under a CR. Good grief, they've certainly practiced. It's been 11 out of the last 12 years for every agency. But what we've seen in the analyst calls that the, uh, some of the publicly traded companies, uh, PSC members, have had is the stock market is dinging them because they're saying their revenue has not met targets, and in large part because the CR has slowed down new awards which, of course, it does. In fact, new awards or, or, or new efforts are largely prohibited under a CR. Well, why does this matter? Of course, it matters because companies more than ever are dependent on the financial marketplace for access to capital. And that capital is going to only flow to companies at reasonable rates if, in fact, they're meeting their objectives, their financial objectives, because plenty of other places for money to go if it's not going into government contractors. This is a serious concern, and the government's not paying much attention to it at all. Yeah, a government that says it can operate on a CR is like saying, you know, a runner can operate with a broken leg, but it may not be optimal. And so... (laughs) You're not going to win the race that way, okay? Then what does this do to their competitive ability, though? Maybe the smaller, more agile contractors can get through this better than the publicly traded ones. Well, we're still seeing a good pace of solicitations. In other words, the government's asking companies to submit bids, um, but everybody is equally hobbled if the government doesn't award these contracts. We're seeing options being exercised. We're seeing extensions of contracts. But every company, large, middle-sized, and small, has to hang on to people that were proposed in a bid. And we've asked our member companies, are you seeing an increase in the number of times the government requests you to extend the period of validity to your bid. You know, it's good up until a certain date. Well, would you extend that for another 90 days? Would you extend that for another 180 days? We have some that have been extended over a year now. How do you hang on to your key personnel when you're not making money to pay for them? No company, large, medium, or small, can do that. And how do you stay with your price bid when we have wage inflation that's starting to kick up? Well, exactly. On top of the difficulty of hanging on in the face of fewer rewards, uh, we're seeing 5 6%. In fact, the numbers that came out Friday show about a 6% inflation across the country in wages. Uh, this is fine if you're a manufacturer and you've got built into your contract an escalation clause of 2 or 3% per year because it's expected that inflation will hit component parts and, and, and suppliers. But for services contracts, it's frequently the opposite. There's usually an expectation that your learning curve will bring costs down. So you've got an expectation of reduced costs and a reality of increased costs. This has got to go somewhere. 
We've actually heard a comment from uh, from one federal uh, agency component that says industry will just have to suck it up. Well, Tom, you can't suck it up when your margins are less than your uh, your wage inflation. Yeah, there are legendary contracting officers that have said, well, I don't see why you need to make more than your costs. What do you need profit for if, as long as you can cover the payroll? There's a bit of a lack of an understanding of the basic laws of capitalist economics there. You don't stay in business if you don't make a profit. And this is back to point one. If the financial marketplace doesn't think you're profitable, you're going to get squeezed at both ends your cost in, and your access to capital in. Better to be Amazon this week than Facebook, I guess. We're speaking with David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. And interestingly, as we talk about the CR, which expires next week, and there's no clear path that to a non-extension of the February 18th deadline, we're bumping up into the signals for the 2023 budget, which is passed pass back at this point. And now, you know, you've got budgets bumping up against budgets. And as it turns out, Tom, under the budget law, um, that budget is supposed to be submitted just about now uh, by the first or second week of February every year. Uh, we're not going to see that. In fact, the reports are that OMB has just issued the passbacks, that is, the requirements to agencies to adjust their 23 budget late last week. So we're still at least six or eight weeks away from any budget submission. But the bigger question is, what does the administration assume for the FY22 column of an FY23 budget? We've got nothing but a CR in place. One thing we're watching for as the as the Congress debates an extension to the CR this week is how far out will that extension go? If it goes to mid-March, that's a sign that we're getting progress on a deal and may have a full year appropriation to go through the rest of the fiscal year. If it goes out to April and beyond, that's not a good time. And it says we may be further out. And of course, as you and I have discussed, there's not only a possibility of CRs for this year, but it will probably extend as it usually does into FY23. And then with a new Congress taking office next January, it could extend well into calendar year 2023. What a disaster that'll be, both for the government and for contractors. Yes, because as you point out, normally the president's proposal comes out sometime in February. And so if that is delayed to March or April or even early May, which is not unheard of from the White House, then Congress is going to pretty much be done for the year by August because that's when they start the Tong War for the midterms. And within the agencies, what this means is I may have money available under a CR. It's at the FY21 level, not the FY22 proposed budget level. But I don't know how much I'm going to get or when I'm going to get it for future. So I'm not going to spend, I'm not going to commit all my funds right now. We could run the risk of, in fact, existing funds expiring unobligated, even though there's important work to be done and the vehicles are there to get it done. This is a bad risk for everybody. Well, they can always use it to pay off college loans for people, I suppose. And also affecting contractors has been the CMMC program of DOD, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program, and that had a 2.0 version come out some months back, and now they have moved the whole program from one office to the other, interestingly under the CIO instead of under acquisition at the Pentagon. And what are contractors saying about that? I think this is something they generally wanted. CMMC 2.0 is a is a new process. It is still unfolding. It may take a year or more before we've actually got a change to the clause in the defense FAR supplement, the DFARS, come into play. And so it's not active in any contracts now. Moving it under the CIO to us at PSE has two possible advantages. 
One advantage is we believe that the cybersecurity threat is not only to government contractors, it's also to government internal systems. And as you saw with SolarWinds and the Microsoft Exchange server attacks, in fact, a recent GAO uh, effort pointed this out, many of the, of the targets of those attacks and the victims of those attacks were government systems themselves, not contractor systems. So the CIO could have the purview over both of these. It would be a positive benefit if, in fact, that's the way uh, the newly uh, confirmed CIO, John Sherman, tackles this question. And a final question, too, by the way, the America Competes Act didn't seem like a big contractor deal, but you've identified a couple of issues and there's no reconciliation with the Senate version yet, so we might or may not see legislation soon. But what's going on there with respect to IT contractors? Well, the hallmark of this bill was the $52 billion of supplemental appropriations for the microchip industry. And of course, we know about chip shortages across the board. And if you try to buy a car, you know that you're having trouble getting one delivered uh, anytime in, in this decade, perhaps. But buried in here in, in the House version, the Senate version passed last summer. The House version has new provisions in it. Buried in it are some requirements for uh, IT contractors, which are not precisely defined in the in the bill, to meet some some real tests on supply chain that we think are going to be trouble. Um, it says it requires DHS. To, uh, to issue guidance requiring that contractors identify the origin of a lot of elements of their supply chain, including software products and services that they supply, and then certify that those components and those services are free of vulnerabilities, and then notify DHS in the event they find one. Well, the notification part's pretty easy. The certification part is the hard part because who knows what the provenance of software is? All you got to do is is look at the JavaScript Log4j escapade that we've been on, where agencies are still struggling to fix this, and so are companies because they don't know. There's millions of cases where this is out there. Putting this burden on a, on every company, large, middle size, and small, to be able to do something that the government can't do itself is unconscionable, impractical, and it will not work. So we're going to work to try to tackle that question as they go to conference. David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing 
we were in regular housing, but people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly 
gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on, and you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.